morning, y'all. So I'm a <laughs> I'm gonna brag a little bit, and she's gonna probably get a little upset. But I really appreciate how well Leah takes the sermon text, takes um, the themes from the sermon. So some of you guys may not know how we do this. Like Chris and I will, when we alternate out and how we're preaching and what we're doing, we, we plan our sermons kind of together. We plan the sermon series together. And then, and then we take our sermons that we develop and build our own. And then Leah kind of gets a pre-copy. She, she takes the time to actually reread or, or look at everything and, and see that. And that's how she plans our worship through music. And she spends a lot of time doing that, and she does a really good job of, of organizing it and getting it all together so that everything fits within the same theme of the text of the Scripture and, and, the, and the ideas behind the sermon. And I really appreciate the work she does doing that. I don't say it enough, probably publicly. I tell her at home, but uh, she probably needs to hear it out in the public a little bit. So I appreciate that. Thank you, hon. We are in Nehemiah chapter 9 today. We've been going through Ezra and Nehemiah as a whole chunk, uh, looking at this story of, of the exiles returning, right? The, these folks who had been sent off because of their sin for a generation of time, and, and now they're coming back, and they're, they're rebuilding the altar, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall, and now, starting with chapter 7, really, of, of, of Nehemiah, they start to rebuild the people. And it's not just a, you know, Nehemiah makes a comment, but who will repopulate Jerusalem kind of question. It's not just that. It's about, that question wasn't just about, all right, God has given us the command to, 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 to be fruitful and multiply. No, no, this was about who will do it. He wants the godly people to do it. And so what we're seeing as we read through this is that, that Nehemiah is taking the time to really dig deep into developing spiritual people people of God to repopulate the kingdom of God at its seat in Jerusalem. And that's what he's looking to do. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 9 today. If you've got your Bible, that is great. We read from the uh, English Standard Version here. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. You'll notice it on the screen as well. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, Cheniah, I'm sorry, Chenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with their hosts. The earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. 
You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of their fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and his servants and the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went up through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night you, for, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai, and you spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and, by, and a law by Moses your servant. And you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and you brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go into possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them in the way, uh, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart for them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light the way for them by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold the manna or your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Basham. You multiplied their children as stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into your hand, into their hand. And their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with as they would. And they captured fortified cities and, rich, and a rich land and took possession of houses 
full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your good, great goodness. <sighs> Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit, though through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, your great mercies, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon your kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all our people. Since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day, for you have been righteous in all that, that has come upon us, and you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. The rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of this, because all of this, we make firm a firm covenant in writing. On sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, our priests. Would you bow with me? Father God, we thank you. We thank you that as, as we've been going through this Ezra Nehemiah journey, studying and, and, and preaching and hearing the word that you've given us through these, these men, how it can apply to our lives. We thank you for that. 
We thank you that we see here that you are a God ready to forgive our rebellion. There is nothing greater gift given to us than that. Not a one. We thank you, Lord. Father, as we get ready to enter into this time of, of worship through the, through the hearing and the proclamation of your word, I, I ask that you would just put me aside and that, that it be you and you alone that is seen and heard. I thank you for the time that we've had to gather to, to worship you. And I ask, Lord, that as you would continue to just speak to our hearts, draw us close to you, convict us so that we may know more fully your joy when we repent. It's in Jesus' name I pray. So here we are, chapter 9, and chapter 9 is kind of an interesting spot to be in, right? And, and as we're going to see that more as we, we dive into it, but I want you to think about this a second. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt really convicted about something, but there was just no good way to do something about it right then and there, right? Maybe you've been in a, in a very moving worship setting, and, and conviction just swept over you but you knew that rushing to the front of the church and laying at the altar to cry out to God right, while the ushers are collecting offering is probably not the best time to do that. Maybe you need a little bit of, of wait time. So you wait and you continue to worship and you intently listen to the sermon. And, and as you're listening to the sermon and you get to that time of the invitation call, that time of altar call, that, then, then you go up and you have your time of, of prayer and repentance and, and you're dealing with God. That's what's really kind of happening here in chapters 8 and 9 of, of Nehemiah, right? Chapter 8 was this intense worship setting. And the people heard the word of God, and they heard it proclaimed, and they had it preached to them, and they listened intently, and they fell under conviction. We are talking about that this morning in, in small group. The Levites said to God, and go, calm down, calm down, do not weep. This is a holy day. We will worship our God right now. That's the, the Pratt translation or the Pratt um, paraphrase. But, but the, the Levites had to go out amongst the people and do that. And, and they were so convicted. And it was very early in this time of worship for them. They needed to wait for the appropriate time in their worship time, in their worship service, so to speak, to, to come to the altar to do business with God. And, and chapter 8 is this fantastic, intense, 24-day worship service that the people are a part of. To worship continually for 24 days in a corporate setting would be beautiful. They have celebrated the Feast of the Trumpets. They have celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles. They observe all the appropriate Sabbaths in this time. And now this is the 25th day of the seventh month, that, that month in, in the Israelite calendar that is so filled with festivals. And they're ready to begin this altar call, this time uh, in their corporate worship time. And that's what chapter 9 is. It's the beginning of this altar call. It's the beginning of their invitation. It's, it's their beginning of call to action, whatever, whatever you're used to calling that. And it's for the people of Israel to respond to a holy and just God as they have heard His word proclaimed. And then you've got to ask yourself maybe, why would God let the people sit under conviction for 25 days? Does he, does he want them to really feel guilty before he forgives them? And the answer is no. 
God wants the Israelites to continue to worship him while they feel convicted so they may see his goodness and then have assurance of that forgiveness. See, as a follower of Jesus Christ, God may convict you early in a time of corporate worship. And it's not to make you feel guilty. But it's to remind you of the forgiveness you already have through Jesus Christ. See, if you have Jesus and are in a life surrendered completely to him, you're no longer guilty before God. Jesus bore your guilt on Calvary. And it's not yours anymore. Not the conviction you feel is, is a reminder that, that you're slipping away from the one who saved you a little bit. And he's the one who took your sin. He's the one who took your guilt. And you may, to, may need to sit through that entire worship service or a few more under conviction before you repent so that you may develop an action plan for what you do after you repent. Hearing the word of God gives you as a, as a follower of Christ, the directions to take, the actions to do when you go into repentance. And chapter 9 of, of Nehemiah is this beautiful altar call prayer. But it's also kind of one of those prayers that's also a sermon. Have you ever been in a, in a worship service where, where the preacher gets up to, uh, to preach and, and, or to pray, and then you're like, man, is, are we getting a second sermon today? It's kind of what happens here in Nehemiah a little bit. Um, I found that that often happens when it's the associate minister who preaches and the senior pastor then goes to close the prayer or the youth minister preaches and the, and the, and the senior pastor goes to close out in prayer that there also seems to be like a, a second sermon in that prayer. I don't think that's what's happening. I don't think there's any of that kind of thing. But these Levites that are praying want the people of God to hear all the wonderful things that God has done. Sometimes they refer to this as, as a rehearsing before God that they're, they're praying a prayer that says, God, we know the awesomeness that you have done for us. We just want to say it back to you so that, that we can hear it in our own hearts. And as the Levites pray, they, they systematically walk through everything, this, this, this theological history of Israel before the people. They just, they just walk them through that. And they share the goodness of God and, and the failures of the Israelites. And the, and the passage should resonate with us. Right? As sinners who are saved by grace, right, we have felt the weight of accumulation of sin in our lives. I want you to, to let this prayer of Nehemiah chapter 9 resonate with you so that you can remember the goodness of grace and mercy that comes from the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's what we're seeing here. And they begin this prayer. And, and it starts with this acknowledgement of who our God is, that he is one. Yahweh is the one true God, creator of all the universe. And, and as we see these images that are coming in from the James Webb Space Telescope, we should be more and more in awe of our God who created all that we see with just his word. Everything we see in the universe is, is a miraculous creation of God. That, and it just shows us how much he deserves to be greatly praised for all that he has done. I'm a, I'm a space geek and a, and, a, and a space nerd. Like I'm the kid that went to space camp three times, right? And I look at these images and I just go, oh, 
How deep is your beautiful creation, O Lord? How vast is your creativity, my God? And then how massive is the universe you have made for us? And yet you still care about me. You know how many I had and how many of those hairs I lost. You know this, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. See, this, this prayer is this, is this prayer of public confession. And I love that, that it's this way, and it's modeled very well for us, that, that it's this, this prayer of true confession that begins with an acknowledgement of who God is. Right? That, that it's, it's because of who God is that we are accountable to Him. True confession is going to praise God for his power in creation. True confession recognizes that, that you are created rather than a creator. The Lord God, he is one, the creator of all the universe, creator of you and I, and we are accountable to him. Do you praise God for his power in creation? Do you recognize your accountability to the one who created you and the one who sustains you? Because only God gives life. And God deserves our praise. And this prayer begins to move the Israelites as, as they're hearing this prayer. It moves them through from creation onto Abraham. And it was God who chose Abraham, changed his name, or chose Abram, cho changed his name to Abraham, and found him faithful. And this tells me that the Levites in Nehemiah's time recognized something. They recognized that, that Abraham was saved by faith in God, not the works he did for God. He would not be seen as, as faithful if he did not first believe. You can't be faithful to something unless you believe in it. You cannot do the work God has called you to do if you don't first believe that God is the one who is worthy to be obeyed. I think it's really interesting that, that these Jewish leaders, some 400 years before the incarnation of Jesus Christ, are reminding the people then that salvation comes through faith, not by works or deeds. Isn't that amazing? And as they continue to pray, they, they move from Abraham's righteousness by faith to his covenant with God. And, and the conclusion of this, this section of the prayer, they conclude it by, by admitting that, that God is the keeper of all divine promises. And I, I, just, I love this. Watch this. This is a repeated theme in this passage of Scripture. Over and over again, they say, our Lord God is faithful and true. Right? We see this idea of him being a keeper of promises, that he keeps going back and going back. He keeps his promises. Yahweh God keeps his promises. He does what he says he will do over and over again. And, and as, as the Levites continue to pray and preach, they get to the exodus and the wandering time. God has heard the Israelites cry in Egypt. He has seen their condition. And he remembers his covenant with Abraham. Now remember, when we see the word remember in the Old Testament, it's not like God forgets. Right? It's, it's, it's not that God forgets. 
It's just a word we use because we don't have a better word <laughs> for what God does there. Right? He remembers his covenant with Abraham. And God cursed Pharaoh with plagues on Egypt because of how arrogantly the Egyptians acted towards the Israelites. God vindicated his people. And this is, this is a particular interest to the people gathered here at the Watergate to hear all of this, right? They have just returned from Babylonian and Persian exile. And as the Levites pray, they see their own situation. And the people gathered there see it as well. Right? The books of Ezra and Nehemiah recount kind of a, a second exodus, if you would, as the people return from exile. They want vindication from God, just like the generation coming out of Egypt received. They want God's deeds and, and goodwill toward his people to make, his, to make a name for himself that endures. They, they want to see his name made great. Those deeds he did for the Exodus generation, and think about them. Splitting the Red Sea, giving the pillar of cloud and, and the pillar of fire to lead the people. When, when God took Moses up onto Mount Sinai and, and spoke to him like a friend and gave him the word, gave the Israelites the instructions to, to, to know how to follow the law. And, and this law is good. It's a gift to Israel. It shows the people explicitly how to please their creator. Do you know how unique that is in the ancient Near East? A word of, from God, how to please him. All those pagan gods around were people scrambling, trying to figure out something so they wouldn't anger them. And yet, Yahweh, our God who is one, says, here it is, here's my word. Do this, and I will be pleased. Specifically, giving them the word. James Hamilton, in his commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah, says it like this. I think this is a really neat way to say it. God does not leave his people unregulated. He does not leave his people unregulated. He gives us a good system to know how to follow God and to live a life pleasing to him. And what a gift this word of God is to us. To read it, to know it, to love it, to love the one who gave it to us. And then from Exodus and the covenant and the law there on Mount Sinai, they preach and pray about the Lord's sustenance to the Exodus generation that wandered the, the wilderness. They marvel at how he gave them food and water. That still gets me to this day. I mean, from the first time I probably heard that in Sunday school. Well, what is it? I don't know. That's what we're going to call it, and that's what we're going to eat. Manna. What is it? Right? And they had water, but it's a desert. God did that. And they're thankful for the land that he promised. But here's the thing that is happening, too, is these Levites are praying this. They are also heartbroken by the arrogance of the Exodus generation they showed toward God. The same kind of arrogance, that word is used here twice, it's the same arrogance that Pharaoh had toward God. Now the Israelites are acting like the Egyptians, and they're treating God that way. See, they are truly sorry about the generation before them, becoming stiff-necked before the Lord. They grieve the fact that their forefathers ignored all the great acts and all the great deeds of the Lord. 
See, when, when you get convicted of sin in your life, do not do what the Israelites did. That's a big takeaway I think we can say from the Old Testament. When you are convicted of sin in your life, do not do what the Israelites did. They ignored all the majesty of God. No, no. When you are convicted of sin, look at your life. Reflect on all the good things that God has done for you. Look at all the promises God has kept. See how God has blessed you by creating you in his own image. How God has blessed you with friends. How God has blessed you with family. See how God allows you to worship freely and to study in his word. See how God has preserved you. How God has clothed you. How God has provided for you. See God in his infinite grace. Recognize that he has not and he never will forget you. See, the Levites are pointing out all of these things to remind the Israelites and us in turn, right, how amazingly good our God is. But not just how amazingly good our God is. This is where their heartbreak comes in. They also see how horrific our sin is. See, God has, has freed the Israelites and they desired to be slaves again, as we're talking about in that wandering time. And that is completely illogical. It's ridiculous. It's stupid, really. But so is sin. So is our sin. God has been so good. He has been so gracious. He has so, shown so much love and so much care. Yet they want to return to slavery. When anytime we read through Exodus, it's always amazing how they come and they grumble before Moses. But we had onions. We had onions in Egypt. Really? Onions. You'd sell yourselves back into slavery for onions? It makes no sense when seeing how good God has been to them. It's like Stockholm Syndrome, right? The desire to return to captivity because it feels safe even though it is a dangerous situation to be in. The unrepented sin in our lives is the same. It has this, this attraction, but it's fatal. And it can feel hopeless, but no, there is hope. Our God is forgiving. Our God is gracious. Our God is compassionate. He's a compassionate God who is slow to anger and rich in love. And even though the Israelites turned their back on God, he did not abandon them. And he does not abandon you. No, God, is, God was ready to forgive the Israelites and God is ready to forgive you. This is who our God is. Amen. Oh. And this is the argument that the Levites are making here this whole time. That God delivers his people, the people sin against God, God forgives the people, and God shows mercy and this is a cycle that happens all and all and on throughout Israel's theological history. God delivers his people. The people sin against God. God forgives the people. God shows mercy. That cycle just keeps repeating. Even when the people were brought out of Egypt and Moses went up on the mount and the people sinned by worshiping a golden calf, right? God forgave them for that. 
and he had mercy on them. Even when the people had acted sinfully out in the wilderness, God still delivered them, giving them food and water. His mercy and his grace are mighty, and they are unbounded. And this cycle of deliverance, sin, forgiveness, and mercy continues through the time of Joshua as God gave the Israelites the land. And it truly was flowing with milk and honey, already hewn cisterns, olive trees, vineyards already producing. All they had to do was use it. It was was almost like the garden again in, in its and its usability by the people. They had everything they could have ever wanted. Yet they rebelled and sinned against God, leading to the book of Judges where everyone did what was right in his own eyes, as it says in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, and 21, chapter 21, verse 25. But God delivered the people through the judges and brought, and brought peace. But once the work of the judges was done, the people went right back to sinning. In verse 28 here of Nehemiah chapter 9, it says, the Levites are showing that God delivered the people many, many times through his compassionate mercy. Verse 28 says, but after they had rested, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Many times. And they continue on in verse 29. The Levites show how God used the prophets to warn them to turn back to the word and the law. But again, they acted arrogantly and ignored the law of God and were disobedient to him. The Levites teaching here in Nehemiah, recording their teaching, they're they're showing this and they're saying this not that obedience to the law will bring salvation. They're saying that if the Israelites had obeyed the law, they would have enjoyed the blessings of the covenant. They're also saying that the only way to be faithful is by faith. And the only way to have faith is to believe and trust in God. See, they refused to do just that. And that's why they were exiled. But even then, God was merciful and gracious. He could have completely destroyed Israel. But instead, he just kicked them out of the promised land. God's mercies are are great, and the Levites know this, and they declare this, and they bring the people back to the truth as they begin their plea for restoration. So they they want to see, they want want God to see their suffering, and they, they want it to be taken seriously as he's taken suffering of the people in the past seriously. They have received God's justice, and now... Now they're looking for God's mercies. They've argued that God has been good to Israel and that he is good to Israel. And they've shown Israel's past sins and yet God shows mercy. What the Levites are wanting here is is for God to repeat this cycle. They want to get back into that mercy side of it. They want him to repeat his pattern. They want God to be merciful to this generation that is returning from exile just like he was merciful to the generation of the Exodus. Just like he was merciful to the generation in the wilderness. They want the same mercy shown that they saw with the generation of the judges. See, and here's the beautiful thing about this. You and I, we get to make this same argument. 
You can show that God has delivered his people since the beginning of time. And you can admit your sin and the sins of generations before you. And God will forgive you and God will lavish his mercies upon you. Ponder all of God's goodness to you. Confess your sins. Proclaim the mercies of God in Scripture. And you can ask for that in your life. And this is, this is what the people of Israel are doing here. They confess God's great righteousness. They confess their sins. And, and Israel has been enslaved by the Egyptians and, and God has delivered them. Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites, see their current situation is, is very similar. So they may be back in Jerusalem, but they're still under the rule of a foreign king. They are still enslaved and they are looking to be fully delivered. They want Yahweh God to, to show mercy to them like he has throughout all of Israel's history. And then they lay their petition before the Lord and they commit themselves to him. The people have been under conviction now for 25 days. Their sin has been, been sitting there and, they're, and they're, they're in it. They feel this conviction of their sin. And they had rightly worshipped God while under that conviction. Waiting for the appropriate time to confess and respond. And, and in that time of worship, the people learned the appropriate way to confess and respond. They have learned that God is a God who is ready to forgive and His grace and His mercy are great and they know no bounds. No matter how arrogantly the people had acted toward God, He was willing to graciously forgive them and willing to show mercy. And the same is true today. See, we are a people who have rebelled and acted arrogantly before the God of all creation. But through His great grace, through His great mercy, He has provided a way for us to be forgiven. Jesus Christ died on the cross. And when He did, all of that accumulated sin that was upon you was taken by Him. The wrath you deserved to face from God the Father, Jesus Christ bore. If you take assessment of all the good God has done for you, if you seek to humbly confess your sin to Him and ask for forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ, God will not only forgive you, he will save you and He will make you a new creation. And He will lavish His mercies upon you. Verse 38, we see that the Levites understood good preaching. They give some action steps to take. Right? They call on the people to enter into a covenant to keep the laws and covenants the people had not been keeping for generations. So I'm going to ask you to take some action steps as well. See, remember what, what we described chapter 9 as being this kind of altar call, this, this long, after this long, intense worship that we see in chapter 8, right? The response we have to the Word of God is part of our worship. When we get ready to, to conclude a service, it's not really the ending at the altar call. It's not really the end at the time of response, right? Your response to God is an important part of worship. We see that here, and we see the people of Israel acting that way. The people here are responding to the word, and you should as part of your worship as well. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you're feeling the, the weight of sin, if, if you're on you, man, I want you to look to Jesus. I want you to look to Jesus. Seek the Lord who is faithful to act in grace and mercy. Seek Jesus who is ready to forgive you. Turn to him today. If you're listening online and you want to know more, shoot me an email. 
office at calvaryheights.org. I want to talk to you. I'll set up a time that we can meet and talk to you about turning to Jesus. If you're here in this room, I would love to talk to you about it as we enter into our, our time. If you already have Christ in your life, but you're feeling convicted about something, or you have some, some sort of guilt hanging over you, I'm going to tell you to turn to Jesus too. Turn to Christ. If you have Jesus and are a life surrendered to him, you are no longer guilty before God. That guilt is not yours. Jesus bore your guilt on Calvary, and it's not yours anymore. Celebrate the mercy of God. Celebrate what he has given to you and live in his mercy. Put your hope in Christ today. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for how powerful it is and how we can see that that you are gracious and merciful. You are a God who is ready to forgive. Father, I pray that as we enter into this time where we do business with you, where we respond to our worship time as we've heard the word, you would continue to move in our lives. Father, we know that through Jesus Christ, the guilt we have as as believers can be taken away. We know also that there's forgiveness for those who are not yet turned to Christ. I pray, Lord, that through this, would move in the souls of those who need Jesus. Use us that way to be carriers of the gospel in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.